You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody and welcome. It's so great to see you. Hope your summer is going great. Man, what a great time in worship today. Thank you for our team and for all their leadership. Can we give them a hand one time? Man, that was so... So meaningful and rich. Um, yeah, the video tells you what we're doing. Scripture reading is going to be on there next. Here we go. You can follow along on the screen. Our scripture reading from our series in First John is going to be from the book of First John, chapters 1 and 2. And here we go. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. And that's the reading of God's word, all his people said. Amen, amen. Yeah, throughout this letter, we're taking a look at it over a number of weeks. The Apostle John, the last living, handpicked, personally trained messenger of Jesus Christ, got this letter, he uses one word five times to describe how God sees you, how he sees me. How he sees us. He uses the word beloved, beloved. And throughout the letter, we see a, a number of resources that John gives us, a number of tools, uh, a number of tests. We're going to see some of those today. Tests to help us understand what it means to be that, to be God's beloved. So today, class, <laughs> what does it mean to be God's beloved people? Well, John says, wait for it here, over and over, it not only means that you can know God, but he goes way beyond that. And he says this in chapter two, verse three, he says, we know that we have come to know him. He's saying you can know that you know as God's beloved, John's saying, God is giving you a gift, a gift to make you more whole, to make you less anxiety ridden more secure, less performance-oriented, which is this. You can be assured 
that you do know the one true God. You can know that you know him. Now, this is what's traditionally been known. Church Bible nerds out here rejoice. Here it is. The doctrine of assurance. It sounds real fancy, real technical. I hope the sermon's not gonna be feeling like that. I hope to you, but that's a little bit what this is about. And right away, when you hear this, you can be assured that you know that you know God. You may have one of three reactions. First of all, may have a sort of a cultural, I'll call it culturally right reaction. Like you're from the cultural right, like, a, like a maybe a highly traditional, religious, moral background. You may be saying, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that people can be assured that they know God. Morgan, it sounds like you're letting people off the hook. You gotta do what's right. You gotta make all the right sacrifices, the choices to know something like that. You gotta try your hardest and hope for the best. Or you may be from the cultural, cultural left. You have a culturally left reaction. You may say, Morgan, ooh, I don't like this either. The idea that you can know a specific God, like there's a one true God. No, the God I believe in, if at all, is highly, highly personalized. Very vague, flexible, and above all, accommodating to my life. Or maybe having a culturally churched reaction day, like you're, uh, you're a person who says, you know, like, been there, done that, boring. This is just one more church, God, Bible, Christian, cliche. But I want to tell you, if you're maybe in one of those three categories today, respectfully, all y'all are wrong. All y'all are wrong. And I say it with a smile, of course. You can know that you know that you're God's beloved. You can know that you know God. That's what we're gonna try to see today by asking and answering three questions. Number one, what does it mean to know God? Number two, how can we know if we know God? And number three, how can we come to know God? What does it mean to know? How can we know if we know? And finally, how can we come to know God? All here from the book of First John. Let's begin and try to ask and answer this first question here. What does it even mean to know God? Let's go back to that verse three to get a clue here. Chapter two, verse three. Again, John writes, we know that we've come to know him. He's using one word twice on purpose and it's the Greek word for our English word know, which is, and wait for it, wait for it, gnosko. Yeah, John's saying here, we gnosko that we gnosko. Now, you got perichoresis last week, gnosko this week, your language experts right now, compliments of Mosaic Church, you're welcome. But what does gnosko mean? What does it mean to know God? Two main meanings of that one word, gnosko. First, this is a pretty simple illustration. All right, I don't know if you have a child in your life, but Carrie and I do. We have a number of them, praise the Lord. Uh, maybe your own child, maybe you have like a neighbor's child in your life. They won't stay off your grass. You know, you got a niece or a nephew somewhere, a grandchild, but if you have a child in your life, you know this is true. It's only a matter of time until that child or children, they beg you to take them to a convenience store or like a fast food place where there exists the fount of all magic in a child's life, the soda fountain machine. Where, where, where? They can not only choose to drink, but how much of it? And some of you know where I might be going with this right now because at some point, once you have been begged into taking them and the soda is purchased, What's the child gonna do? That child is gonna act out a specific thought, which is this. If one soda flavor tastes amazing, 
how much better would all the soda flavors taste together, right? And they take the cup and they go from thing to thing. And that used to be called, not a good name, but it used to be called suicide. Yeah, need a new name for that now, clearly. But that's what it was called back in the day, right? Now, whether that drink tastes good or not is irrelevant for the purposes of this illustration. What does matter is the answer to this question. Is it possible to separate out the flavors anymore? Can you get the Coke out from the Sprite, from the orange, from the mystery blue energy drink, from the Mountain Dew, all that? No. The answer is no. Why not? What's happened? The answer is that two things, in this case more, but minimally two things that were formerly separate have now become one. To use a metallurgical phrase, two things have become amalgamated. They've been fused together, mixed together. You can't separate them out from one another anymore. They have become united. And John says that's part of what it means to know God. To gnosko him is to have a knowledge of God that unites. And all John's doing, by the way, is picking up a very old, ancient, familiar thread from the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, where it uses the word yada to describe intimate, personal, uniting knowledge. Now, when you read through uh, the book of Genesis, for example, you get to Genesis 4.1, you read that Adam knew his wife. Hmm? Come on, King James fans. Knew his wife and she became pregnant. Cain knew his wife and she became pregnant. That man and that woman, they knew each other. Daddy, what does Genesis 4.1 mean? <laughs> does, does that mean they were studying each other, Daddy? Yes and no, son, right? Because it wasn't just information. Adam's getting about Eve or Eve about Adam. Nor was it just physical intimacy. That's the Hebrew word shakab. This is yada. Adam knew Eve. Whole life, whole person, knowledge that out of two creates one. By the way, right here, this is where I think Christianity may push you to an uncomfortable space about just how much God wants to be involved in your life. Up close, personal, no facade, no play in church. I don't want to do that. I'm assuming you don't want to do that either. He wants, God wants, as he said years before John, back in Jeremiah, he said, I want all my people, my beloved people to know me. To Yadami. I want them to have knowledge of, the, of me that unites me with them. See, that's Gnosko, to have a knowledge that unites. Second, second. Number two, I have an uncle, and if you know me at all, you probably heard about my Uncle Steve. Uncle Steve, yes, he lives up in Idaho, and Uncle Steve is basically <laughs> way after Jesus, but way before the Dos Equis guy. Uncle Steve is the most interesting man in the world. He is an out, expert outdoorsman. He's got a master's degree in outdoorsery or whatever they, they give master's degrees in that. He used to float this riv these rivers in wetsuits uh, for weeks at a time, studying you know, bear, tra tracking bears, studying salmon migration patterns, reporting back on the state of the ecosystem to the Idaho Fish and Game Department. He has an immunity to something, he, something he's developed an immunity, to something called Giardia which is a virus that's present in water. It's the reason why if you go camping, you have to boil your water before you drink it. Otherwise, you get sick from Giardia. Uncle Steve doesn't have to boil his water. 
Uncle Steve simply refreshes himself at will from whatever mountain stream he wants while he looks at you over waiting for your water to cool on the trip. Now, he's an expert, a fisherman. I've been with him many times. I'm standing there. I can't catch a thing. I hand over rod, reel, bait, tackle to Uncle Steve in the same spot I've been in for hours, catching nothing. He hauls out fish after fish after fish. You'd swear it was lucky, except I've seen him do it too many times. Uncle Steve built his own house up in the mountains with his own hands where he heats his own house with the wood he chops down from the trees behind his house. It's watered by a filtration system he installed on the back of his house to catch the runoff snow water for the, of course, the other people to be able to drink, not him. He doesn't need that. And recently, his son, my cousin, shot and killed a grizzly bear with a bow and arrow <laughs> and walked a two-week trip into the wild, walked out of it carrying 200 pounds of wild bear meat on his back. One year for Christmas, Uncle Steve's gift to me was his Ziploc baggie full of deer jerky. I've had moose burgers, elk soup, pheasant instead of turkey for Thanksgiving where I had to pick out the shotgun pellets to eat it. Are you getting who my Uncle Steve is? Yes, all right. Anyway, one time Uncle Steve took me, my mom, my sister, whitewater rafting on a, on a raft up on the snake River in Idaho, it's beautiful up there. And while we're on the raft, we're going through mostly like levels two to four are rapids. Rapids come like one to six, six is the hardest. Um, We hit a level five, pretty violent, pretty dangerous. And it literally flipped my sister, who was in middle school at the time, flipped my sister out of the back of the raft. Going crazy. Her, she's, she managed to grab the rope around the raft, face down in the water, just bucking back and forth. The thing's going all over the place. My mom screams, save my baby. Big brother Morgan reaches back, pulls her out into the thing, back under the raft. The raft is shaking. We're all crying, screaming. We embrace. No, thank you very much, Uncle Steve, right? Now, let's say you wanted to go whitewater rafting. You're saying, Morgan, I never wanted to in the first place. You've convinced me I never should now. All right, but for the sake of this moment, (laughs) let's say you wanted me to take you whitewater rafting and you asked me, Morgan, what do you know about it? What do you know about whitewater rafting? And let's say I told you, well, I have, I've studied a few maps of the river. I watched like a five-day online tutorial and I heard this like motivational speaker talking about how great rafting was. You hear this, but then you ask me, Morgan, have you ever actually been whitewater rafting? Have you ever actually been down the river? And if I said no, what would you say? (laughs) You'd say, I'm going with Uncle Steve, right? (laughs) Why? Because Uncle Steve has a knowledge of the river that comes as a result of experience. And that's the second thing that gnosko means. To know God means you have a knowledge of God that comes as a result of experience, that somehow, some way, you encounter him, you experience him in a way that goes way beyond just personal information. It goes into the realm of personal experience. Let me ask you, do you have this? Have you had this? Or is God maybe only, only a five-day seminar you took one time? Only something you heard from a motivational speaker on a stage somewhere. Have you gone out? Have you gotten in the boat, in the raft, and braved, hear me, the bottomless rapids of God's heart for you? Do you know God? Number two, let's ask, all right, all right, Morgan, I see what you did there. How can I know that I know him? 
All right. If that's what it means to know God, how can we know we know him? Throughout this book, John thankfully gives us here a number of tests. A lot of tests throughout the book. It's a lot of what the book's about to see, to be able to determine if you really are God's beloved. And here in this passage, there are three. Also a convenient outline for a preacher. Thank you very much. So we're gonna look at each of these three tests John gives us in turn. Here we go. Test number one. Do I, do I openly affirm truth? Okay, not just my truth, not just his truth, her truth, my personal truth, but the truth. Look at verse eight. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A chapter later, he says, yeah, I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So John here, hang on for a second. He's insisting there's something theologians call this the kerygma. Kerygma, K-E-R-Y-G-M-A. It's the seed, the doctrinal core of the Christian faith. There is a body of truth that must be believed. Now, some of you are saying, Morgan, like two minutes ago, you just told me that knowing God was way more than knowing information. Yes, I did. That was true too. But here, Morgan, you're saying there's a kind of truth I have to know and believe. Yes, yes. It's because while the Christian faith is more than rational truth, it's not less either. Here's why. A few years ago, I was doing some ministry work in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, great town if you can go. And I discovered in my trip there that someone no less than Paul McCartney formerly of that little band, the Beatles, may have heard of him. Anyway, somebody's staring at me. Good gracious. All right. All right, it's all good. That was, I guess, for all the boomers in here, plus me, I suppose. All right, you're welcome. Growing up, I love the Beatles. It's kind of why I got into music in the first place, but I share the same birthday, thank you very much, as John Lennon. The exact same birthday as his son, Sean Lennon. Anyway, I drove to the arena that night. I bought this super high-priced ticket for a fraction of the price, which really annoyed the concert goers next to me when I told them how much I paid for it. But I found out I was like on the floor, like 40 rows from Sir. Paul McCartney. Now, let's say I got to go backstage, which I didn't. I got to go backstage and I got to meet the man. Let's say he heard I was his biggest fan and he wanted to meet me. And if that happened, and then when I went up to him and he introduced himself and he said, hello, <laughs> my name's Paul, you know. I said, no, your name's not Paul. Your name's Ringo. Ringo was the drummer. Uh, your name is Ringo. Ringo, right? You're not from England. You're really from America. And while I know you said your songs mean these things, you didn't really mean that. They mean what I say they mean. And I'm a total fan of yours. What would he say? He'd say, probably, you may be a fan of someone, but it's not me. Why? Because to be in relationship with him would mean I would have to believe certain things about him were true. The things he said himself about himself were really true. If I don't, I'm literally making up my own Paul. John says there is truth. And that truth, most of all, is Jesus. He is the absolute truth. He's the absolute light, John says. That means you can't even see truth without him. Without him, John says, we're blind. Let me ask you, have you affirmed you believe in the absolute truth of Jesus? Not as an advisor, not as an option on like the spiritual menu, drop down buffet thing, you know? Not as a personal assistant, not as someone you thank when you win the Grammy, <laughs> you make the catch. Have you affirmed him 
as the truth. If you haven't, John says, I'm only the messenger here. <laughs> if you haven't, John says, you don't know him. Okay. All right, just got real quiet. All good, no worries. There's more where that came from, thank you. All right, number two, do I, test number two, do I happily, and yes, I chose that word on purpose, happily embrace other Christians? Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, while, yes, Jesus does command us to love our enemies, that stands. John is narrowing our focus here to brothers, sisters, Christ Christians. And right about now you're saying, Morgan, this is the third week in a row. I've heard about this. How important it is to love the people in Jesus' church. What's the deal? Well, the deal is two things. Number one, it's a really big deal because you can't really even like throw a rock in the New Testament and not hit this somewhere. Yeah. If you say, Morgan, well, I don't want or need other Christians in my life. On one hand, I don't blame you for saying that. As a pastor, I can neither confirm nor deny I may have thought that at certain times as well. It's like in 2020. But if you fundamentally walk away from the other, other Christians in the faith, John was saying you've also walked away from the faith. Why? The final form of hate, Eli Wiesel put it like this, you probably heard this, final form of hate is indifference. A theological way of putting it would be this, to say what the third century bishop Cyprian said, that God is not your father if the church is not your mother. God is not your father if the church is not your mother. Now old Sip may sound kind of harsh, a little bit controlling there. I'll give you that a little bit. But I think what Cyprian is getting at with that statement sounds way more like what John's getting at than the modern spiritual but not religious crowd, which says, I don't really need other people to be a Christian. Right. Let me ask you, do you happily embrace other Christians? Not only here, but let's say even online. <laughs> oh man, do we happily embrace other Christians online? You know, what's easier to do and, than embracing is to type up a really sharp, witty, biting, 140 character or less statement about the shortcomings of the person, ministry, denomination, speaker we don't even know. Do we think Jesus is really honored when other Christians, when Christians slug it out on Facebook? in the face of a watching world. My wife, Carrie, she knows I'm not perfect, all right? And I have come to know that I know that she is. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, we're not, of course, we're not perfect. But if you, let's say, you come lighting her up, social media, you and I are gonna have an issue. Why? She's my bride, right? She and I are one. Now, the church is the bride of Christ. They're one. And if you say, I hate the bride of Christ. Church, first of all, you're hating yourself, by the way. And second of all, John is saying, again, don't shoot the messenger. If you hate people, whether brothers and sisters, the church, you don't know God. Number three, third test here. Do I gratefully surrender my freedom? You're like, oh God, this is the worst one of all. Okay. Do I gratefully surrender my freedom? Now, on our family vacation last month, Stephen's family, we went to a little lake house in the middle of sort of nowheresville in Texas on a lake. And because there had been so much rain and reduced travel, uh, 
Because of COVID, a lot of wildlife, specifically birds, were present and went out on the lake kayaking. And there was a kind of bird that we saw we had never seen before. It was stunning. Uh, it, it was like white with these pink uh, flecks and red streaks. Now, not an ornithologist, but the internet does come in handy. And I went home and I looked it up. It's called a rosate spoonbill. Beautiful bird. Now, let's say that beautiful bird, white, pink flecks, red streaks soaring out over the water. Let's say it thought, you know what? I'm sick of all this flying stuff. Flying is keeping me from becoming my full bird self. I want to live under the water where the fish are. I'll say the beautiful bird did that. I'll say it went down there and it stayed and it stayed and it stayed and it stayed. What would happen? You know, it would suffocate, drown, and die. The beauty of the bird would be lost. Why? Because it wasn't designed to live there. It was designed to live out here. Is that beautiful bird, is it more free or less if it chooses to live down there? Less. Why? Because it wasn't made for the water, the air. Oh, it brings out, it releases the beauty of the bird. The right environment for the bird, therefore, is it restrictive? That air is freedom. Oh, the bird, in a way, if it gives up, when it gives up, a loss of freedom to choose where it lives, right? And it lives where it was designed to live. In the embrace of that, it releases the beauty of the bird. It lives more freely. So when John says, we know that we have come and know him, if we keep his commands, what's he doing? What's he doing there? He's saying to come to know God is to know your creator, your creator, who has designed humans to live in such a way, right? with moral design. And when you do that, when you come to know God, it means you embrace his moral design for your life as well. Not your standard, but his. There's a happy loss of freedom, a happy loss of choosing to live how you want. Is life, come on, is life more or less beautiful with killings, murders, lying, theft, greed? Come on, you know it's less beautiful. God's a creator. He designed the world to work in beauty and to come to know him is to come to embrace his moral beauty as well. All right, number one. To know God means you have a knowledge of him that's united him with you. You know him by experience personally. It results, yeah, in the affirmation of truth and the embrace of other Christians and the loss, happy loss of freedom. Is this you? Is this you? All right, you say, Morgan, I don't know. All right, number three. How then... How then, if we don't, how can we come to know him? Come to know God. Well, John thankfully actually shows us all the way back at the beginning of the passage, verse eight. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What's he saying? Let me try to summarize it. I'm gonna give you a statement and unpack it. John's saying this, I believe, that you come to know God when your brutal honesty meets his faithful justice, okay? Your brutal honesty meets his faithful justice. John's saying, if you're not willing to become brutally honest about even sin in your heart, not just that you're like a mistaker or a tried harder, that may be the case too, but about sin. If you're not willing to do that, he's saying you're, you're part, we're part of the problem in the world, not the solution. If you're saying this today, I'm fine how I am. Morgan, the problem with the world are the people who watch that other news channel. They're the ones who are messing it up for the rest of us, right? 
I'm saying, you trick yourself. You're deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. Like 12-step programs said, they say, to change, to begin to change, you must make a fearless moral inventory. Until you become brutally honest with yourself, you'll never change. And yet, and yet, being honest isn't all that John's after here because look a little closer at verse nine. He said, when I confess, when we confess our sins, God is faithful, what's the word? And come on, just, say it again, just, yeah. Now, I remember reading this verse as a child, maybe you did too, and I love this verse because I thought it was saying, whoo, if I confess, God's just got to forgive me. I can do whatever I want to, and he's got to, you know, let it go. You know, he's got to forgive me. I was sort of like this old German poet, philosopher, maybe you've heard of him, Heinrich Hein. He lived for himself. He criticized God for years. Then he fell ill on his deathbed. His friends are gathering around him, and they said, listen, you know, Heinrich, aren't you concerned there might be a God? If there is, what are you going to say to him? Aren't you concerned about it? And Heinrich Hein said this. He said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Is that how you see God? Is that how you see verse nine? Like to forgive you is his job. He owes you. That's what Hein believed. That, did that change him? Did believing that change him? No. Did that believing that bring him closer to God? No. Did it set his heart on fire with a, an encounter with God, with the Holy Spirit? No. Did believing that help him love God more, love others more? No. So that can't be what John means, and believing that won't help you either. Why? Here's why. Think about it. Think about this statement. In the end, justice overcomes mercy. Justice overcomes, you're like, Morgan, wait about, hang on, what about that verse? I know this thing, a Bible study, wait about the verse, hang on. No, consider for a moment the reality in this world, justice overcomes mercy. Here's what I mean. I happen to know the very fine officer we employ every week to be here with us, Officer Craig. And let's say, you know, if I continue to park my car in the handicapped spot out front, which I should not do. Let's say if I did that, I'm not doing that by the way, at some point, if I keep doing that, Officer Craig's gonna have to say to me now, Morgan, I like being merciful, and I like you. Thank you very much, Officer Craig, I like you too. But I can't let this go on. I can't let you break the law anymore. Here's your ticket, all right. Is, is that what's happening in heaven with Jesus, and God the Father, right? Jesus is our advocate, John says. Is Jesus up, up there every time? Is he saying, no, no, just like plead for mercy? Is he pleading for mercy every time we sin? Is in, please, God, just give Morgan one more chance. Don't write him the ticket. Is that what's happening here? Forgive Morgan because of your mercy, God. That's not what verse nine says. Verse nine says this. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and what? Not merciful, but what? Just, faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It says God forgives because of his justice. And to not forgive you or me or someone when we, once we come to know God through Jesus would be unjust. So how does Jesus function as our advocate? How does he save us? All right, like this. When we sin, when we confess, we acknowledge our sin. That Lord, I, I have blown it. I have done what I wanted to do. When I wanted to do it, I have sinned. Jesus says, Father, 
They have sin. And the wages of sin is death. No question. They have earned that and deserve it. No way out. Oh, but Father, look at my blood. Look at what I have done. And for you, God, to get two payments for one sin, that would be unjust. Oh, so I don't ask for mercy for my people anymore, Father. I ask for and I demand your justice. Will you be faithful to your sense of justice? What you poured out on me, let it be applied to them. And God the Father says, yes, I receive them as my beloved child because of what you, Jesus, my firstborn beloved, have already done. If you'll see that, feel what's inside that today, you can know this, oh, that you were so far from God that Jesus had to die for you. But you're so loved by God, Jesus was glad to die for you. Imagining God's like a sentimental milksop mercy for you. It won't change you. But seeing, recognizing there's a costly mercy for you, a just mercy, that'll change you. When you say yes to that, you know what happens? Yeah, you become more humble. You become more honest. You let go of that thing that you thought was really freedom, but it was killing you. Your heart becomes more and more free and whole. I encourage you, if you haven't yet, haven't today, come to know this God. The God who calls you his beloved wants to make you whole. You pray with me. We're gonna take just a moment and pray and ask God for his help here. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for moments for believing where you really can part the curtain in a way really wasn't there in the first place, but we just experience your nearness in a, in, a, in a fresh way, reality, reality bending way. Lord, I'm praying we would experience that now. And if you're here today, friend, online or in the room, you're saying, I somehow I've heard something today and I realize I don't know God and I want to. Great, so glad you're here. That's why we're here. If you're here and you're saying, I wanna know God, great. Would you just take a moment and pray this prayer with me right now? Just say, Jesus Christ, I want to know you. And right now, I turn away from me and I turn toward you. I turn my back on all the ways I've lived for me. And I embrace all you have for me. I ask that your blood that you shed on that cross for me cover me, change me, and make me new. I thank you, God, for receiving me as your beloved through Jesus today. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.